0: Hello everyone and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and will almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or drive of the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and today a reading. There will be conflicting creative advice driven by at least three utterly disparate points of view. Your hosts today are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 20, Ashes to Ashes. Chaz
1: is going to read us a story. Well, I am. Um, But I want to talk to you a little bit about it first, because there are three things to say about the story. With any luck, I'll remember at least two of them. Um, The first is that David Bowie died. I know. Which was a sad thing. I cried. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, who didn't? Um, And shortly afterwards... Uh, i was contacted and asked if i'd like to write a story for a charity anthology where the only um given the only the the, the only rule was that the title of everybody's story should be a david bowie title um and and i said oh oh i'm in can i have ashes to ashes and they said Yes, nobody's asked for that. And I said, good Lord, other people are strange, because, you know, <laughs> strange. Right? Um, but anyway, so there's that. And then I started thinking, because it's all about spaceman and, and drugs and all sorts. And I like space station stories. And I like bar stories. And I thought, oh, I could put those together
0: and a make bar a space bar bar
1: story. Yes, you could a space bar story, and that's a joke too. <laughs> um, so, for those of you who remember typewriters, it's a joke. Um, and so I was, I was very happy about that. Um, and and I sat down and I wrote this story. Um, tragically, um, the anthology never actually happened. Years passed and it kind of fizzled and went dead as a project. Um, But in the meantime, I'd written two more stories set in the same space bar.
0: But Um, if we take this ashes to ashes and we go read it over his grave, will he come back? Almost certainly. That's what's important. Yes. We challenge one of you dear listeners to go do that.
1: (laughs) Maybe take a microphone. (laughs) Um, And the other thing I think I need to say beforehand is that it has a, an epigraph um, from a very favourite poet's poem, poet poem of mine um, called In the Desert by Stephen Crane. And now I'll just read it. Ashes to ashes, because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Sooner or later or too late, Every pilot touching in a dock finds their way to Paris on the margin. There's a sign out over the sheetwalk, but that's not designed to be helpful. It doesn't offer guidance, far less an invitation. It doesn't even say as much as Paris, just an elegant sweeping pea, grey on grey. You need to know where you're going, essentially, or have someone take you in. It's not a bar, although you can certainly get a drink and pay for it. Parry likes to call it the rest between bars. It's certainly not a club. It's not private in that peculiarly public sense. There isn't a membership list that excludes you. Find yourself on that problematic doorstep. You're welcome to come in. Just be aware. There's a whole lot happening in Paris that is really very private indeed. Most of it is not your business, and it would be a mistake to make it so. Mercy, Mercy walks in like a blow to the heart, like a benediction. Spacers run tall, but Mercy's taller. And nothing in the margin is ever quite clean, but she is clean all through, and sharp as a chef's knife with that inward curve that talks of too much sharpening, of steel worn dangerously thin at the core. She's picked someone up out there on the walk, young and male and vividly lovely, exactly the type to be sucked up and drawn after as she passes. Not a pilot. He steps into Paris in her wake, and for a moment he only stands there, occupying the doorway, stunned by the calm. Out there, the other side of the door, the station gropes into nothingness like a half-curled spider. The head, the, the part that occupies the least space, where this boy has strayed from tonight, where he truly belongs, whatever he wants to think is called base. The rest, the most expansive part, the embrace of it, is called dock. Dock encompasses those stretching legs where the great ships pause, and everything that serves them in their hesitation. Storage and supply, loading and unloading, repair and re-engineering, customs and record-keeping, contact and communication. And local traffic, of course, to and from every planet and moon in this system. And recreation, yes, that too. Hence the margin out on the sheetwalk here, where everybody comes when they have an hour or a day or a long, dreary month to kill before they can ship out. That transient population numbers sometimes in the thousands and never stops talking, moving, drinking, dancing, fighting, fucking. Never. And then there's Paris, In the margin, but not quite off the margin, unless it's the very heart of the thing. A haven for anyone who needs to catch their breath, have a conversation, look someone in the face, share a meal, take a shower, start again. Anyone's welcome, any time. Parry never sleeps and never turns anyone away. You just have to put up with the pilots and remember that it's all about them. Mercy, Mercy is the least of them, the best of them, the least work, the best company. She walks in and everyone smiles, the boy catches the backwash of that warmth and smiles himself, a little uncertainly, a little buoyed, willing to coast in on her welcome, aware that he's taking a liberty. It's a nice display, unexpectedly bashful. Anywhere else it might have won him acceptance in his own right. Not here. He's not a pilot. Mercy cozes up to the counter where Parry's already pouring. Her long fingers engulf the glass, lifted in a toast to him, to the room, to the company. A dozen glasses are lifted in response from colleagues, peers. In anyone else, it will be an impertinence, and everyone else knows it. Her boy, of course, knows nothing. He reaches past her to proffer his ID, to pay before she can. Harry shakes his head, perhaps he rolls his eyes a little. He says, it's on the house. Oh, excellent. What is it? Choriatric lemon. As though that means anything, as though it has ever meant anything other than expensive as though anything else could matter. Oh, he knows nothing of anything except the price. He says, make that two, will you? Parry says, hers is on the house. Oh, he knows nothing of anything, and all he knows about price is that he can afford it. Well, I'll have one too in any case. This time Parry charges his ID, and the kid conspicuously doesn't look to see how much that cost. Now everyone else knows what he knows, for all the good that'll do him. Still, here he is, with the best imaginable companion. Mercy Mercy is a passport into better and brighter and darker conversations than ever he could have approached alone, for all his money and all his youthful beauty and all his practised, educated charm. And he has the grace to know that, and to acknowledge it. He sips his drink and slides into her shadow, follows in her wake, Not quite erased, but self-effaced. And that's charming too, and beautifully done, as though he were, after all, wiser than his years. Perhaps he is. Everything's ambiguous out here on the limb. What isn't liminal is problematic. Mercy, mercy leads him to a table where four or five are sat together. It depends how you want to count. Is that devolved clone one entity in two bodies, or two minds with but a single thought? and hooks herself a chair by means of one long, long leg. She sprawls at her ease and looks up at him with a smile that's open and easy. Not an invitation, it's not her table, after all, but certainly suggestive. So he fetches a chair for himself and perches modestly on the edge of the circle, still somewhat in her eclipse. Really, he's managing this unexpectedly well. So, says Mercy, who's new? Her boy, of course, is newer than new. But that's not what she means at all. Around the table there is, or are, ten Barry the Clones, who will cheerfully answer to either name or both together, and always wants to be asked about the other eight, in order to be mysteriously evasive in reply. That's not new, of course. That's repertoire. So is Brone, the hulking shutter-self entity, the pilot without a ship, the lone traveller who never leaves the station, who has barely ever even been seen to leave Paris, it has a room in the back and a seat in here. That seems to be enough, by and large. If this is anyone's table, it must be Brone's. No one would thinkingly choose Brone for a host, that vast and disturbing figure, swathed in blankets, sipping an unidentified liquid, seemingly through a translucent, hollow finger. And yet people do choose to sit here when they can, when there's a chair and space to squeeze it in. Brone speaks, about as often as it steps outside, but it exudes some sense of calm or comfort, of homeliness. People feel better sitting close. Blone's other side, there's Quest. Yes, of course that's his real name. It's the one he answers to, the one that everybody uses. What's more real than that? If anyone out here is still using their milk name, or the name on their paperwork, it's more than they'd admit to. The only history that matters, the only records that anyone would look at, are a pilot's logs. You are where you've been, and how swiftly and safely you arrived there, and what you delivered along the way. Quest is like a distillation of every Downsider's fancy, what a pilot is and ought to be. Lean and ageless and experienced, he's a cynic and a mystic both at once. He wears his journeys the way Downsiders wear their years, on the skin and in the eyes. He has a faraway look that doubles with an intensity of focus, asked if he has another name. He'll say vision. He can't compete either with Bone's depth of silence nor with Mercy's bright engagement, but he doesn't need to. There's nobody here to compare with Quest. Last at the table, there's my who might as well be a deliberate exercise in contrast. She's small enough to look ridiculous in this company, needing a booster seat to reach the table, and she can only ever fly her own ship because she depends on its adaptations. In downsider terms, she's too short to reach the pedals. But Myellalin has adaptations of her own that make her a phenomenal pilot. Her eyes are five times st- human standard size, and they don't only see wavelengths unreachable by default. Whether it's the eyes alone or the eyes in combination with her other alterations, she is said to, to have enhancements on the molecular level, in her brain and throughout her nervous system. Myelolin is one of the few who can look directly into the chaos of end space and see actual structure there. She can find her way without benefit of software or luck or strategy, intuition or long practice. Hell, she can find her way without drugs, and that's priceless. Even passengers feel safe with Myelolin. Besides which, she comes with her own ship, which is the opposite of priceless, because everyone knows what a ship is worth, which is more than anything else – that anyone has ever tried to pay for. Mathematically, human space itself is vanishingly small. They call it the limb because it is long, attenuated, stretchy, and because limbs are coherent, reliable, solid, reassuring. Apply the actual maths and it's more like a whisper in the wind. Nobody does that kind of maths. It's too dispiriting. The other kind says that we have occupied and colonised dozens of systems in a long throw from home base out into the dark. It's a pathway, progress from point to point, with settlements at every stopping place. And pilots are the invaluable linkage, the golden threads that stitch it all together. Where would we be without our few, our vanishingly few pilots? Alone in the dark, that's where. Seriously alone, because we've never met any other rational creature. It's Fermi made physical a philosophical question answered in the actual. We really are, apparently, on our own. When it's asked in Paris, who's new actually means the opposite? Who's still alive? Because there's only one way to know for sure, and that's to find them here. Veterans accumulate, they localise, they seek each other's spaces. Paris is a node, where everywhere else is just a destination. Myelilin lifts her sharp little chin and uses it to point into a shadowed corner. Feral is, she says, meaning not Feral's new, because they all know him intimately, but Feral's back. Now that is new. That is news. That is a call to duty, or else a call to arms. Mercy Mercy looks and sighs, and turns to her pretty boy and says, Enjoy your drink, sweetie, and walks away without a backward glance. Ferrell wears his shadows like a cloak, like blown its blankets, a wraparound mood that no one is invited to peer beneath. No one ever, which does bizarrely, almost unthinkably, include mercy. Which does not, of course, keep her from trying. She thinks it important to try. Perhaps it's only important to her, but that's enough, surely. Besides, he's a pilot. Pilots are rare and precious and tend to come broken one way or another. Survival is a damaging business. It's Ferrell's table and he's alone as ever. Mercy Mercy touches the back of an empty chair, raises a questioning eyebrow. He shrugs. He truly doesn't care. He can be just as much alone in company, or just as little. This could be his great failure his entire incapacity to leave humanity behind. However hard he tries, however far he goes, he's always got himself for company, and they don't come more human than that. She sits, and just for a moment her fingers shift to touch his glass. Like the eyebrow and the shrug, there's a whole unspoken conversation going on here, except that this one's more of a monologue. He doesn't trouble to shrug this time. They've unsaid it all before. Pilots don't drink when they're in port, off duty, away from their ship. Nor do they smoke, nor drug, no intoxicants. Downtime is about reacquainting themselves with their bodies, living inside their skins. They seek out strong flavours and vivid experiences, and all of them in real time, unmitigated, undisguised. Sex is popular, commitment is not. Hence Mercy's Boy, casually acquired and just as casually abandoned. If he's still around later, she'll pick him up again, maybe. If he's lucky, if she's back in the mood, if Feral doesn't turn even that sour and unrewarding. Pilots don't drink, but Feral does. And worse than that, he blinks up at her and she can see that he's still taking Hexumeth. That's the pilot's survival tactic out in end space the only edge they've got. It slows things down around them, buys them time, and it stretches them out. It gives them room and reach. They love hexymeth out there. In here, that's something else. Nobody likes to see a pilot using in normal space. It isn't safe for them or for anyone. What they can see, what they can tell, what they can touch. There's nothing neutral here, nothing harmless, nothing clean. Nothing except Mercy, who is clean all through. What gift she has that sees her go into end space and return in safety time after time. Well, that's been hotly debated but there's an emerging school of thought, adrift towards consensus. She feels it, is what they say in every port and station. She finds her way by feel. She's another skin crawler, except for her it goes deeper. Call her a bone crawler, the first of her kind. In the universities, they say she has empathy, a layer of empathic response that underlies all her sensorium. She doesn't question end space, she listens to it reflexively. A man who was neither dock worker nor neuropsychologist, once said, she's a one-way mirror who dreams of broken glass. Be that as it may, she sits with Ferrell and observes the niceties. You never ask a pilot where they've been. What does the destination matter when it's all about the journey? You buy them a drink, except that he has one already, and then you say, what's new? It's meant to draw out the true story of their trip, whatever they can bring themselves to share awful warnings generally, snares and pitfalls, rockfalls, deluges and plagues. Everything's a metaphor. End space is a mesh of possibilities, mischances, ways to go awry. And that's a metaphor too. It's really not a mesh at all. Nothing so organised. Some say it's a mess, hopelessly unstructured. We could have ordered things better. Only then you're into the whole metaphysics of travel and existence and who ordered what, who had the power and who the authority, and you really wouldn't want to go there. It's hard to go where you do want, when there are no maps and no routes, no trails to follow and no practical directions. When those who've survived the journey can only talk about it in images and references that are not your own, a whole system of semiotics that you don't and cannot share. Nevertheless, pilots still do this. Neurotically, relentlessly, they seek each other out, pin each other down and ask for stories. Sometimes all they can do is wonder at how strange the other has become. And nevertheless. Fowle says, I saw something, way down deep where no one goes but me. Everyone always thinks that they have it hardest, that they're boldest, that their risks are the great risks and their journeys the great journeys. Mercy says, honey, everybody goes deep one way or another. "'Not like me,' Feral says. "'I could show you if...' "'His gesture speaks to the alcohol, "'but that isn't what he means. "'It's only that the drink is in a glass. "'It's contained. "'It's something he can point to. "'What he means is the hexameth, "'which is in his bloodstream and his tissues, "'nothing to show except the distance him to her. "'Feral, you know you shouldn't do that. "'Not here. "'You have to come back to ground "'or we'll lose you altogether.' None of us wants that. We've all seen too many drifters out there. That's what they say. But the truth is almost opposite. The drifters are the ones they never see, out there or anywhere. They're the ones who don't come back. The missing faces, the undelivered cargoes, the ships gone and long gone from the roster. People assume they just got lost in end space, but no one really knows. Occasionally a pilot reports a sighting, another ship out there in the fog and the confusion, but people see so many strange things, and no two pilots ever see the same. Those reports are not considered reliable. What is reliable? What is certain? No pilot reported lost has ever turned up later or elsewhere, and no ship has ever been recovered. They walk a borderline who choose to go for pilots. One step over is all time gone. Not out there, Fowle says, in here, meaning all through the human polity, throughout our reach and culture, meaning in ourselves, in our being, in our deeds. She hears him down deep and almost reaches for his drink, although she never does that. Tell me, she says, he's drunk, he's high, he's on Hexumeth, but if he's drunk and high and on Hexumeth, he of all people, a pilot, and in here of all places, in Paris, perhaps there's a reason. It's what we do, he says, what we've always done, although we didn't know it. What we bring with us, out of the blue. To scientists, and so through all the polity, it's end space. Another dimension, or a distortion, or a practical dreamscape, end for nightmare. But no pilot can be a scientist, or not for long. It's easier to be a believer, even in a faith of one. Perhaps it's some hangover from faiths long superseded that pilots call it the blue, that place they go where no one else can follow. Perhaps they're only hankering after ancient history or a sense of continuity, something to hold on to. What's that then, Feral? The terrifying thing is that she believes him before she even knows. He's a pilot. He brought his ship safe to dock, and then he came here. If his mind is broken, it's since he birthed. It's because of this, of what he's found in here. Not space has done this to him, not the blue that only made it possible, perhaps. Ignorance, he says. Misinformation, lies, that's what we ship. One system to the next, one year to the next, one generation, all down the line. We tell them we're so special, he says, we're so important their indispensable lifeline. How would they ever hold the polity together without us? We few, we sacred few, all the stand between them and isolation, every system on its own again, and humankind alone again in the dark. Well, we are. Alone, I mean. No, he says. No, we're not. Wherever we've been, she says, it's just us. We've never found other intelligent life. Even Brone, the shutter self entity, even that is human of a sort. Far and far from baseline, but human yet, human after all. Ferrell says, we've never found intelligent life, no. And there's such despair in his voice. He's so irretrievably broken. She reaches over the table to grip his hand. She never does that. Pilots get willingly, willfully physical with the world, with passing strangers, with any body they can, but not with each other as a rule. That's not a place they care to go. After a moment, he says what he's been building up to all this time, what he's been dodging around. I was out there, he says, down deep, he says, and I saw, I saw a ship. Feral, we all see things we think are real. Yes, he says, yes, we do. And you know what? we write. Just that once, that little way, we write. It's all we've got. And then we come back in here and tell each other we were wrong, just that once, that little way. I saw a ship, he says again. Not like the stories, the incredible designs, the great living ships or the webs of coherent light. I'm sure those are all true too. I'm sure there are aliens all through the blue. But I saw one of ours. Not recent, not current not one of us. It must have been centuries old, but still, human-built for sure. It used to have a number on the side, mostly gone now, space dust and time. I couldn't read it. I can't tell you who flies that ship, who flew it. But that's the point, he says. It wasn't a drift. It was purposeful, travelling, going somewhere, the way we do. I could feel her, he says, the pilot, working her way through the blue. I guess if two ships come that close, it's going to be because their pilots work the same way, more or less. Think the same way, feel the same, something. We could have connected. If I'd been sharper, he says, we could have talked. I could almost hear her. I could almost follow her. I did try, but she slipped away from me, going somewhere I couldn't quite reach. And that's when I saw it all so clear. That's when I understood, just when I lost her. They're not lost, he says, the ones who don't come back. Not the pilots, not the ships. Not drifting, no. Going somewhere we can't get to because we're not good enough. We thought they were the failures, he says, but it's not them, it's us. They're better than us. They don't just hobble from one system to the next the way we do, bound to human space and human reach. We fall short and turn back where they go all the way. And not alone, he says. They only have to go alone the first time, from us to them, to break through. "'That's where all the other races are, Mercy, on the other side of the blue, where you and I can't go. Not good enough. "'We thought we were the stars,' he says, and they were the fallen, but it was the other way around. "'We fell back where they went on ahead. I thought,' he says, "'I thought if I kept on taking the hexumeth, if I tried to find another way of seeing us in here, "'I could maybe see a way to bring us all through together.' "'Of course I was wrong,' he says.' Why would I ever think otherwise? I've always been wrong. That's the point. Like all of us, he says, with a perilous sweep of his arm. Mercy barely snatches his glass away in time to save it. We're the rejects, he says, louder now, snatching it back again. What's the point of keeping clean? Going out, we're never going to get there. Coming back, we're always going to know. Now they are. She is. Mercy, Mercy looks around at all those pilots looking back at her. And she can't think of anything except... How she's going to tell them, what she's going to say. Maybe she should start with drinks all round, not coliatric lemon.
0: Oh, I like that one. It reminds me oddly of Skeen.
1: Um, Skeen. Do you remember Joe Clayton's Skeen books? I have not read them. <gasps> Joe Clayton is. Uh, um, I you I know of her. From all many directions and I have just never read them. Well, you have her books in yes, your house. I know this. So
0: <laughs> I should get Skeen's on Leap, Skeen's Return, and Skeen's Search. Okay. Um I may have modeled my life after her. So um, <laughs> just saying. Okay. No, that was beautiful. Oh. I love it. So I think I think David would be proud. Yeah. I hoped she would have liked it. Uh, I think so. What what's not to like? We will put links to this story and the interesting things we mention in our webcast on the website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter, and we gladly answer email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag, including the brand new Live at Mally's t-shirt, which I already have on order. Thanks for listening.